Hello, everyone, and welcome to the ENC podcast. Um, we are glad that you are joining us again today. Once again, I'm your host, Shelby Robinson, and I'm joined by our co-host, ENC chaplain, David Young. David, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be back again. So we are joined by another special guest that we are excited to have today, and we've been looking forward to speaking with her for weeks now. Um, so her name is Brandy Miller. Welcome to the podcast, Brandy. Hey, thank you. I'm really glad to be on today. We're excited to have you. Um, and we wanted to kind of start off, you know, for those who maybe aren't familiar with you yet or haven't got to watch the video, the discipleship video that you sent in, um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, totally. At the end of the day, I'm a regular person. I have hobbies and friends and am probably too overwhelmed by too little during this pandemic season. I feel like I'm always at about 50% capacity when normally I wouldn't be. And so I think I'm a regular person in that way. But for the last 10 years, I've spent a lot of my time figuring out what it means to lead college students well toward a more holistic discipleship to Jesus. And so that's looked a lot like leading justice programs here in the Northwest where I live, and also trying to create experiential learning opportunities for folks just to have yeah experiences of the ideas that they hold in their heads really often. Because a lot of the college experience is inputting a lot of information and not having a lot of good outlets to let that fully integrate into our lives. And so it's been my hope to be able to do that. And then very recently, I started a podcast called Reclaiming My Theology that's attempting to help people reinvigorate their faith by taking back their theology from systems and ideas that oppress. And that's been new and good and fun for me. Awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. And I'll just take that opportunity to add that I'm a big fan of the podcast myself and <laughs> really enjoyed, enjoyed following. So big shout out there. Uh, appreciate the work that you're doing there. Um, Brandy, I just, you know, I think probably most folks who are listening to this have probably heard by now about the uh, announcement regarding the grand jury's decision um, with the case around Breonna Taylor and the um, indictment of one officer, uh, but not the others who were involved in that. And just right off the top here, I just want to kind of give you an opportunity to reflect on how you're thinking and feeling about that today and um, and and just how you're processing this event? Uh, I think for me, what has been maybe the most striking in this non-indictment is that it feels really similar to all of the other non-indictments. That for me, at least in my own journey, since the non-indictment of Darren Wilson and the murder of Michael Brown Jr., I have never had an expectation that justice is going to be served. Because we live in a system that was never meant to protect black bodies, that was never meant to protect even just regular citizens, I don't want to say regular, to protect citizens in general from the police. And that the system of policing that we have currently does everything that it can to protect those who already have power and instruments of violence on their hip all the time. And so it is no, surprising, it is no surprise to me that the system worked exactly as it has been designed to, which I think can sound like leftist progressive propaganda or something like, oh, the system's just doing what it does. But it's true that if an officer says that they fear for their life or they feel like they have a reasonable reason to take the life of a citizen, that they can do so without any kind of penalty from the law. And what feels challenging, I suppose, on top of that is that human life has so been devalued that an officer can shoot and kill and we want to use the law to be the arbiter of justice, which makes sense that we would want that. But sometimes the law is, and most of the time in the U.S., when it comes to black and brown bodies, the law is insufficient to 
do what is right and good. And so I think we have to learn to not equate the law and good or the law and right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's been a challenge in this season where a lot of folks, I think, are becoming disillusioned for the first time about the law not working for everyone equitably. But to me, it doesn't Mm -hmm. feel like a surprise. And so on a personal level, I think I feel very numb to it. And I think I'll probably feel it more later at some point. It usually catches up because right feelings, it's like a trash compactor. You can compact for only so long until that thing is full and then it finds a way out. And so Mm. for me and for others, I'm sure that there's, I'm sure that there is a way in which the ongoing violence that we're seeing in every realm right now is probably not always finding a good emotional outlet yet, but it will at some point. So, Yeah. And so to hear you talk about, um, you know, you're just sort of not surprised, right? Like, this is kind of what you expect. But I'm curious that, like, and, and, you know, as I have some understanding of why you'd have that expectation, right? Like, how do you sort of continue? How do you sort of go on in this sense of, like, well, this is just, this is just what happens? Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe to frame it in a different way, you know, talking about your ministry with college students, like, as you speak to students who are trying to process this while simultaneously doing the hard work of being in the classroom. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say to them uh, as, they, as they try to work through that? I think low expectations of a system do not mean low expectation for humans. <laughs> like mm. I think that laws and systems are insufficient, but it doesn't mean that people cannot and should not have an ethical or moral responsibility to change when those systems are oppressive in any kind of way. And so I think there's a time to be tired and there's times to go through the waves of apathy and rage and disengagement and all of those kinds of things. But I think at the end of the day, hopeless systems shouldn't mean hopeless people. And I think that's a pretty hard thing to hold on to in a lot of ways. However, I think for me, especially as a Black woman, to look at the legacy of Black folks who had entirely more hopeless situations than what I'm experiencing, and a history of people globally who have had more hopeless situations than what I feel like I'm experiencing right now, they found some way to keep on. They found some way to fight. They found some way to sing old Negro spirituals, to pray, to have a spirituality that could hold the reality that like hope I think is the hardest, one of the hardest calls in scripture. I think Jesus's three hardest calls are probably love for enemy, drop everything and go, and to hope in a reality that we cannot see in the midst of oppression and violence and evil. And so to me, it feels like it is not an option for people who profess some degree of faith in Jesus to step outside of a stream of hope that God has been, for lack of better words, fighting for, for the entirety of the scriptural narrative and the historical narrative that we find ourselves in. And for people that don't follow Jesus, I just think that there probably is a motivation just to be a better human than the systems that have been set up by maybe even well-intentioned and not bad people in themselves, but that have negative consequences. I just think that we should have a higher bar than what we have right now. And that, that, that I, want to, I want to have integrity to myself at the end of the day and to my people. And that is motivating to me, even in the midst of what feels pretty hopeless systemically. Mm-hmm. As you talk about like sort of an idea of holistic discipleship, are there certain practices that help you sustain that hope in the midst of this sort of hopeless system? Yeah, as I mentioned before, I think stuff stuff around like paying attention to the ancestors and going like, how do I enter into or even just become on the periphery of this cloud of witnesses, as scripture would call it in Hebrews, right? This cloud of witnesses who bears witness to God's goodness and 
to God's justice in the world. So I think reading the stories of history has been really helpful because there are ways that if you read history, it can be really freaking depressing. But what I find as I read are these heroes who, who risked something or everything of themselves so that I can live the way that I do now. And I don't know, I'm a gardener. And so I feel like there is something to planting something and letting the mysteriousness of what I don't understand about science, I get there's people who get what happens when you plant a seed, but that there's this mysteriousness that I submit to in some ways that helps me to stay engaged, to go, this is not all mine to win. This is not all ours to win. This is not all a single person or a single community's responsibility to win. It is to do our part. And so I feel like if I do my part and I enter into that story, that something happens with that, even if it's just change in my local community or in my household. I think we have to maybe um, dislodge the notion that everything we do works on a macro level all the time. Because if we do that, we will become hopeless and we will not know how to engage or to sustain. And our our spirituality cannot hold that. And so for me, I think that there are some of the specific practices that I've used to that end have been uh, reading and learning history, really really intentional solitude and silence, because right now it is easy, it is so easy to doom scroll or to find ourselves constantly inundated with information. A lot of it that's fake news or false information. And I think our brains only have a limited capacity to be able to sift through all of that, let alone hear the voice of God to us and to our communities in the midst of all of that. And so I think silence and solitude is one of the most humanizing things that we can do in a social media and digital world that can dehumanize us and turn us into the machines that we're staring into all the time. And so for me, I need that. I think also I'm pretty consistently seeking feedback from people in my life. Mm. I think there's a spiritual practice to that. I think about people like Samuel, right? Who is consistently going to folks and being like, that's not it, man. Like, (laughs) that's not it. And helping to reshape leaders. And so I want to be a person who is proactive and engaged when I'm not proactive in receiving feedback because I think that feedback opens me up to a deeper discipleship that points me toward Jesus when I can't see that I'm not doing so. Mm. I just don't want to rush over the fact that you said doom scroll. Uh, I think <laughs> I think this is a new term for me. I don't think I've heard that one before, which I'm <laughs> sure just shows how old and out of touch I am or something like that. But yes. I find that doom scrolling is like the equivalent to, it has a similar feeling to when, you start binge watching a television show during the daytime and then mm. suddenly you pull out of the television hole and it's night and you're like, why do I feel so dead and empty inside? <laughs> I think doom scrolling, you're just constantly scrolling through social media, hoping it will make us feel better. It has a similar feeling and I'm sure there's some kind of science to what that does to our brains, but mm-hmm. it feels very similar to me. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I think going off kind of what you just said, like one of the things that I thought about, especially in relation to the message that you sent in, Uh, One thing that I wrote down was you saying that proximity matters and how we see and honor people that are not like us. And so thinking about that kind of quote and the world that we live in now where it's the world's literally at our fingertips all the time through social media. And yet we're still trying to put distance between ourselves and those who aren't like us or those who are suffering or um, those who are dying at the hands of power and privilege. Um, So how like would you advise people who are this close to the world and yet finding themselves not in that close proximity to those people. How would you advise um, people to really lean into that in a way that is healthy and not the doom scrolling um, that you kind of just mentioned? Yeah. 
I think really simply intentionally diversify who and what you read. One of the things that I think is a benefit of social media and a curse of it is that we can really intentionally curate our timelines. And for most folks, if we are left to our own default, we will default to our default, which is people who are like us to homogenous echo chambers of who we are. But having the world at our fingertips does mean that we can be privy to conversations that we would never get to be involved in. So I always tell my white students who are on Twitter, follow a lot of folks of color because they're having conversations in public space that are not yours to be in the room for, but that are happening in public space where you can overhear conversations and be shaped by conversations that would not happen if you were in the room. And so I think that there's ways that we create proximity by curating timelines that intentionally create dissonance for us. So for me, like one of the things that I often invite folks to do who are exploring sexuality or gender for the first time outside of their really conservative upbringings is to follow LGBTQ plus identifying Christians online and to go, oh, I didn't know that there was this whole world of thought out there that as I hear it, as I get closer to stories and as I get closer to pain and death, I move to question whether the thing that I was taught is actually theology or whether it's indoctrination into a certain type of ideology that's more rooted in my community. And so I just think there's ways that we can open up how we engage with people and who we engage with by listening well. But I think that requires some intention in whose voices we privilege. So for me, to be honest, I have like a moratorium on white guy thinkers right now. Because for the first 20 years of my Christianity, I only read white guys, like old, able-bodied, cisgendered white guys. And so it is not a disservice to whoever for me to be like, yeah, probably for the next five to 10 years, I'm going to read one to four white guys and they're going to be good ones if I do. And like well-vetted and you know, I just feel like that's not a disservice. But I think because of the ways that we think about the academy and who gets power and privilege and who gets to write, that we only see white men as being legitimate. So to step outside of that sphere could feel like it is to dishonor God by dishonoring theology when really it is to honor God by expanding our view of who is made in the image of God and what all of that looks like for us. Yeah. I mean, that's just all really good. And I think just so important. And I think, uh, I mean, I think especially as we're thinking about sort of academic context, especially important in these contexts, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think sort of who's on our bookshelves and who we're assigning for certain classes and things like that is really indicative of the kinds of conversations we want to have in those classrooms. Yes. So I I think maybe along those lines too, um, one of the things that I'm thinking about is, uh, you know, I don't like, well, like I don't know what it's like to be a student of color in these circumstances, right? Like, so, I mean, I know even like when I was working on my PhD, and all these episodes that have happened over the last several years would come up. It was distracting for me even, you know, and it's not the sort of life and death matter for me that it is for others, right? Um, But I could sort of say, I'll I'll file that away and I've got to focus on my dissertation and I'll kind of come back to that. But I, I mean, I imagine and suspect that for many students of color, that's a little harder to do. So I I wonder, like, what would you say, for example, to white faculty members? What could they be aware of that students of color are sort of experiencing going through in moments like this? Well, one thing that I think comes to mind right off the bat is that students of color are often far less audacious than white students are in asking for what they need. And so 
I think faculty and staff, I would say even pastors or leaders of organizations need to be proactive in giving folks of color outs when there are things that happen. And the majority of the time, people aren't going to take those outs. Like saying, hey, I recognize that this thing is a, especially for black students like right now with Breonna Taylor. This is affecting our bodies and our ability to think. And so if there's an assignment that's due Friday, make it due on Monday. Because those extra three days are not going to kill a syllabus or a curriculum, especially for like a lot of folks out there who are like on Zoom all the time. It's not going to kill you to give someone an extension. And there might be some teaching that you have to do and some engagement that you have to do around pastoring and walking your white students through why you might do that. But again, I don't think that our personal integrity as leaders should be hinged on the acceptance or whatever of people who are privileged and, and less affected by things that happen. Because, right, like we wouldn't say, so I can think about something like 9-11. Say 9-11 happens. Mm. We're going to give people a moment because it's affecting their lives and their, their inner being. If someone's parent dies, we're, we're not going to be like, oh, yeah, we'll get your assignment in tomorrow. And I think because communities of color are often more collective cultures, when someone who looks like us dies under circumstances that feel really familiar to us, it feels a lot like a close death. Mm. And so I think there's ways that we have to be more empathetic to people's experiences and not just divorce force people to divorce their personal lived experience from something that's happening for their community externally. So I think there's that piece. Um, and the other piece I would say is to make space to talk about what's happening in the world in your classes and coursework. Because I think that there's some ways that we treat, and I know I hear a lot of students use the language like when I get into the real world as though the world that we're living in in the university isn't real right now, or that the formation that's happening or the events that are happening are just like sideline things until you leave school. That's not true, but I think that faculty can reinforce that by using examples, practices, literature that isn't relevant to what's happening in the current moment. And it teaches a type of academic disengagement from the things that are happening in the day-to-day -day and gives us no frame to engage with those other than academics. So the, one, the last thing I would say is that I think that faculty can learn and practice nonviolent communication and engaging with their own emotional process as they coach others to academic ends because I think that nonviolent communication allows us to tap into our needs and our wants. It doesn't just make us academic machines that have to keep going and going and going just to get the thing done. Yeah. I really appreciate the example of 9-11 because I was in college when that happened. Oh wait, now I'm telling everybody how old I am. Uh, yeah. was in college when that happened. And I mean, I remember the, the whole campus just pausing, you know, for days, like it's all anybody could talk about or think about. Uh, so that seems like a really useful example to me. Another thing that kind of connects to this, I think, is um, in speaking about the academic world, you know, we talk a lot about the performance and you even just mentioned that academic, like even disengagement um, at times. So I would, I wondered, uh, I think you mentioned this in the video, uh, you offered a question that was, um, how do we become people who are formed um, rather than just uh, people who perform? And so I wondered in the world that we live in and even in our faith at times um, where we are pushing this kind of performance um, method and in the academic sphere too, how do we be people who lean away from that and lean more into that formation um, that you kind of mentioned in your video? Well, I think immediately about Paulo Freire, who in his kind of iconic work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is talking about different forms of education. And he talks about this banking model of education that deposits information into students to then withdraw at a certain point. 
and then nothing is really retained or some things are retained, but they're more just, yeah, performance. So we teach performance in academic spaces in particular ways. And we do that in Christian spaces in other really specific ways that, right, I grew up in an apologetics culture community where it's like, if you could answer why another religion was bad, your religion was somehow better. Or like, if you could answer, you could memorize a Bible verse and spit it out, even if it hadn't formed your life in any way, you seemed more holy because you seemed like you were a person of the book. And so I think that we have to recognize the ways that banking models of education are built into us and form how we think that formation happens, like that we assume because of the models of education that we're given, that if we can recite the right thing at the right time, that it means we've been formed and that's not true. So I think being able to recognize that firstly is pretty critical. And I think that the way for me, at least that I've tapped back into that is by paying attention to my emotions. I am, if you're like a Myers-Briggs person, I'm an INTP and I'm like so far a T on it. I think I have, I scored like less than five to 10% on the feeling scale. If you're an Enneagram person, I'm an Enneagram three. And we are known for like fully disengaging from emotions, like all, so I am not set up in any of my personality, in any of my background, in any of my training to have my feelings be present at all. But our feelings are our bodies giving us signals of safety, of right, of affirmation, of danger, of all of those things. And I think a lot of the time, because of banking models of education, we're taught not to feel. And like when something feels off, we just assume we need to learn it and then regurgitate it, not realizing that when we put information into ourselves, it changes us and it shapes us and it forms us. And so I think really my simple answer in all of that is to say, we can recognize banking forms of education and then we can let our feelings have prominent space in how we engage. Even if that doesn't change how we test or how we, whatever, it should. But even if it doesn't on a faculty level change how we do those things, I think for students, there is a responsibility to ourselves and to our long-term development to go, hey, how do I feel about that? Does that really piss me off? Hey, why is that? What in me has formed this kind of anger? What in me has formed this excitement about this idea? Why do I feel isolated as other people talk about this thing? Because if we can do that and not just sideline those things, we actually give ourselves space to be formed. And for people who identify as Christian, I think, I always say that like God doesn't want to transform the fake you, God wants to transform the real you. And I think academic institutions at their worst teach us not to know the real version of ourselves for the sake of performing something else. And that doesn't seem like an interest of Jesus at all. So, Yeah, as an Enneagram 5, I really relate to uh, the idea of like, not really processing your emotions or at least not processing them until like three days later or something, mm-hmm. I think seems to be my habit. Um, what was that, Shelby? I was just saying, you're a five. I'm a five too. So I also- <laughs> well, there you go. Here we go. We got two fives running the podcast and a three guest. This could be dangerous. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, you know, one of the most important things I had to learn was uh, it's really convenient to think of others as like rational beings. And that just seems like a massive myth, right? That um, actually we're really like emotional beings. What it did sound like in what you were saying, though, is that there is this like reality of dualism that exists in our world where we elevate the mind over the body and the spirit at all costs because it somehow makes us seem more objective or something. And so I think there's a way that unlearning dualism also seems significant to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, I even, you know, I even think about you know, Paul, I mean, it's just kind of remarkable to me how comfortable Paul was saying, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Um, it's, just, it's kind of hard to imagine saying that myself. Uh, but I mean, I think it speaks to what, you know, what you're talking about, that 
Um, it's not just the sort of depositing of information, uh, but that it's really this imitation, right? In, imitation and formation. Yeah. Um, as we're shaped yeah. into the likeness of Christ, as we follow, like the, like the cloud of witnesses you mentioned before, right? Like um, that we're, we sort of tap into this cloud of witnesses around us as models for us to imitate, not just knowledge to be gained. Yes. And like with the example of Paul, Paul saying, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. And Paul messes up a ton and his theology mm -hmm. changes a ton and his practices change a ton and where he goes changes a ton. And so I think even part of that imitation is the recognition that we're going to mess up and we're not going to get it right. And that part of formation, I think only happens in failure. I think it's why wilderness journeys in scripture are such a, prim a prominent theme. Mm. But there's people like Moses, even in the extension of the story that I talked about that Moses has this heart for justice, then he's super angry at the injustice happening against his people and murder is his response. And then he goes into the wilderness and is formed for some time until God brings him back to do justice differently. And so I think there's ways that like, even the ways that we imitate implies that we are going to fail and change a lot. And that we see that as a narrative that plays out through the arc of all of scripture. And I think along those same lines, you know, like, you know, I think about Paul in, in 2 Corinthians, you know, ask, asking for the thorn to be removed from his flesh, whatever that is, right? Um, and Jesus saying, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness, right? Not in strength, but I mean, so we're like, we're talking around campus here in, uh, in terms of spiritual formation, we're talking a lot this year about the kingdom of God and how this is a kingdom that is not built on human strength, but like, that's always the temptation, I think. Mm -hmm. is to think that like God's power is manifested by our power and our strength. Um, but instead, I think like you're highlighting one of the, the key themes that we're thinking about that. No, actually God's power is highlighted by your vulnerability, your weakness, mm -hmm. your imperfection, yes. uh, that we carry that love of God in these jars of clay and all the imperfection that comes with it. Definitely. Do you have any other things that you would want to share or put out there, Brandy? I mean, we're in a political election season freaking vote <laughs> like i don't care if you think your vote doesn't do anything for the entire world yeah vote vote as a form of discipleship vote as a form of engagement vote as an act of integrity to yourself mm. it doesn't make sense not to vote yeah and i think the one thing i would say just it's kind of an aside to everything we've been talking about but there is this very boring argument out in the world right now that's like oh we can't be partisan because we're part of the kingdom i understand that in a different time than right now mm. Right now, partisanism is kind of our default. It's where we're stuck. And there are worse options than others right now. And to choose the less of two bad options does not kill your integrity. It invites you into the story of scripture where people are given two terrible options all the time and have to choose. And it is a privilege and a, like an annoying and enormously exhausting mark of privilege to opt out of two bad decisions because you don't like them. So vote. Vote even if it doesn't feel good. Vote for the good of other people. Freaking vote. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brady, you mentioned we talked about your podcast already. Is there any, any uh, other places you want to mention that people can find you? No, nah, it's taking most of my energy right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, no, <laughs> I lied. I did lie. I just got to write an essay for a book called Keeping the Faith that is a series of 35 essays written by evangelical-leaning folks who are just arguing that Trump is not the de facto and should not be the de facto option for 
Christians in this upcoming election. And so have a chapter in that, but my friends wrote some really great stuff in there. So if you're interested in that, that book comes out October 1st. Okay. And that's Keeping the Faith, you said? Is the Keeping name the title? Faith. Awesome. Yep. All right. Sounds great. Well, thank you again so much for joining us today, Brandy. We've definitely enjoyed our time with you. Yeah, I'm happy to. Thank you. To hear more from Brandy, like and subscribe to her podcast, Reclaiming My Theology. And look for the book she is featured in titled Keeping the Faith, which will release on October 1st. This podcast series is sponsored by the Kaufman Initiative. The Kaufman Initiative is an endeavor sponsored by Eastern Nazarene College, supported and funded by the Kaufman family. The goal of the Kaufman Initiative is to reinvigorate Christian witness in America and has three aspects. The vision is to allow the ENC and local community to hear and be impacted by stories and practical wisdom of how to be faithfully Christian both inside and outside of the workplace. The Kaufman Initiative for the Renewal of Christian Witness exists to inform and inspire our community, students, faculty, staff, local pastors and churches, and the broader Christian population, to embark on a lifetime of fruitful witness and enhance the impact of ENC's mission, both on campus and by extension into the world through her alumni, for decades to come.